0: We're in Passion Week, and we're celebrating each week now the final week of the life of Christ. And I want to um, draw our attention this morning on a passage of Scripture out of Matthew 26 where Jesus gathers his disciples before the crucifixion and has a meal with them. And this is a meal like no other meal. I've entitled it, the Last Supper, a continuous feast. Because this is the meal that lasts for eternity. Now, we understand that Passion Week, Now we're in this new season. It's a very, very important season for believers. And it will go all the way through until we reach the crucifixion. And we celebrate it because it is truly a holy week. Each of the four Gospels spends a lot of time focusing on the details of what happened in the life of Christ in the final week of his life on this earth. The final week was bringing the culmination of all that he wanted to teach us and do into one week. It's called Pasco in Greek, and Pasco means to suffer. That's why it's called the week of suffering. The passion means to suffer. But it also means to wait. It means to wait longingly for something to happen. And so Jesus is now in a posture of waiting for what will come. And it's a a change in, uh, in, in almost in profession for Jesus as an active worker to now a, pa- a, a passive patient. In a book entitled The Stature of Waiting by um, uh, Vanstone, Dr. Vanstone, he does something very interesting in chapter 3. He talks about this, this move, this change from a position of being active and moving around and being involved in activities to now being quiet waiting. And he talks about... in encountering an illness, and the one that he chooses is a coronary thrombosis. Anybody's, anybody had a coronary thrombosis? Now, why in the world would he choose that of all illnesses to illustrate his point? Well, I have, and it, it, uh, it caused a heart attack. A thrombosis is simply a blood clot in one of your arteries where it closes up and you enter, into, uh, <laughs> you enter into a heart attack. Your heart is now needing oxygen that it's not getting and blood flow. Now, he talks about this coronary thrombosis as just an illustration of moving from where an individual was just ordering and arranging the affairs of their life and then all of a sudden something happens in their life and it catches them by surprise and that one moment... They, they, they now become helpless to a certain degree, needing others to help them and moving from action to passive. And they now become a patient waiting for what will come. There's great suffering in that. And we've all experienced a time in our lives where we are waiting in the midst of possible suffering. And we've gone through that and, and, and yet what we find in all four of the Gospels is that Jesus is describing this Pasco week of Jesus, this passion, this, this place where Jesus is now waiting for something to happen. And each of the events is helping to show us how he is waiting and why he is waiting for something significant to happen that will change everything. As Taylor said last week, and we want to continue to repeat it, that suffering must happen, and it precedes something better. What suffering does is it enables us to experience something better afterwards. And without suffering, that something better wouldn't happen. It's all context. In your life, like Jesus' life suffering has a place. It serves a purpose in your life because something better is coming. And Jesus is illustrating this through the Passion Week. And that's what we're going to look at in Matthew 26. Last week we looked at Matthew 24 where Jesus begins this Passion Week after he comes into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey, on a colt, and they, they pronounce him Hosanna, King of Israel. So they They pronounce him as the king of Israel. They see him for who he is and they bow down and they put down the the, uh, palm tree leaves on the ground and and he rides in and it's a triumphal entry of Jesus and yet very quickly everything changes. Like a thrombosis, boom, it hits. And he now goes into a place of suffering and one by one people begin to desert him. The Pharisees plot against him. Judas uh, will betray him. He acknowledges the fact in Matthew 26 that every one of his disciples will betray him. The crowd turns on him. The crowd that had acknowledged him as the Messiah will within hours of his death turn their backs on him. Almost everybody will desert Jesus. And he's experiencing now this suffering in this context. And in Matthew 24, he begins by saying, it's going, to be get, it's going to get worse. Even when I'm gone, there's going to be a time as we approach the very, very end. It's going to get worse. It's going to get hard. There will be suffering. You will suffer as I have suffered. But take hope because I come again. And I bring meaning to your suffering when I come again. That was last week. This week, within the context of a meal, Jesus explains his suffering, why he has to suffer. And here it is, Matthew 26. Let's look at it. And I just have a couple things to say about it. So he gathers disciples. It's about Passover. It's about two days away. It's a very, very significant time in the Jewish calendar. Very, very significant. And they gather together. And it says, while... So they, they come together and they're reclining the table with Jesus and his disciples in verse 20. And Jesus acknowledges the fact that one of them will betray him. In the context of this Passover meal that he has asked his disciples to set up for him, they've come together and Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say, well, surely it's not I, Lord. And he answers, he says, whoever dips... His hand with me in this bowl is the one who will betray me, and the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written, but woe to the man whom the Son of Man has betrayed. Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely, Lord, it's not I, Rabbi. And Jesus says, You've said it yourself. And while they were eating, so they began this meal together, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. And when he had taken and taken the cup of given thanks, he gave it to them and says, Drink, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink with you in newness in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus has this meal And in the context of the meal, which is a very traditional meal of Passover, which includes this unleavened bread, four cups of wine, a main dish, which is the lamb. That's not good. And you'd think I'd be ready for this. Happens every time, it's so hilarious. Um, so in the context of this meal, so you have the unleavened bread. You have some herbs and other things, a hard-boiled egg, and it's a beautiful meal. And it's, it, it all represents something. And then you have the, the wine, and then you also have the lamb, the unblemished lamb. And each of them represents something within the context of Israel that is very, very significant. And Jesus uses this, this event, to teach us about his Pasco, his suffering, and why he is to suffer. And so I want to look at what is the Passover, what does it mean, and what's our response to it. And first of all, it's very simple. The Passover goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. And in Exodus chapter 12, you know the story that the Hebrew people had been in bondage in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and they finally cry out to God, and God hears them. And he decides, it is now that I will deliver you. And he tells them he will deliver them. And in Exodus chapter 12, the time has come. And he tells them to prepare a meal, a Passover meal, before the Exodus. Before that they are actually removed from this position of bondage, of slavery, of being controlled. And they set this meal, and the meal includes not only bread and wine, but a lamb. That they slay, and then what they are told to do, it says in Exodus 12, is to take the blood of the lamb and put it over their doorposts. And they eat the lamb and share the lamb with their neighbors. And this will be a sign as the angel of death passes by to take the firstborn of all Egyptians because of judgment, because of the rebelliousness of their hearts towards God. Those that have the blood over their doorposts, the angel of death will pass by. And after this event, and after the firstborn are all slain in Egypt, And they're in the midst of suffering and wailing, you are to leave and go and move out and head out of slavery. But the meal represents the moment in which the people have been set free. And that's what Passover is about. And Jesus uses this meal to describe what is happening in the life of the disciples during the Passion Week. He takes the bread, he says, and I want you to take, and I want you to eat the bread. And the bread represents the bread of affliction. But what's interesting about this is it's now my affliction. Jesus will say, this is now my body. So Jesus will use the symbolic reference to the affliction of the 400 years of the people of Israel of Egypt, that lived in Egypt, the Hebrew people. 400 years, and he will use that as an example and say, the affliction they felt will now be upon me as you take the bread, remember the affliction that I'm about to experience, the betrayal. People betraying me, the way in which I was treated, and then the shame of crucifixion. The loss of my life is the bread of affliction that I will take upon myself. I want you to take that bread and remember that. That's what it is. And what Jesus is saying in that is reminding them of the Passover meal and the bread represents the affliction they were in. But yet, what is the the unblemished land? The unblemished land is the redemption for them. They receive freedom through the lamb. And Jesus says, I'm the lamb. I am the Passover I am the main course of this meal. Not something else, it is me. And that's what Jesus says. I am the one. Jesus in the Passover meal dramatizes not his life, not all the things that he taught, not all the good things that he did for the people, but his death. That is really significant. His death is the thing that is dramatized. Why? To show his love and compassion for our condition of living in bondage and slavery to the pharaohs of this world and the consequences of having to live enslaved. And that's where people live. They live enslaved to the pharaohs of this world and what Jesus' death does is it removes us from that. That's what the Passover meal represents. Malcolm Muggridge said this, it was the most famous death in history. No other death has aroused one 100th one part of the interest as this death. No other death. So significant. So what does it mean? Well, let's keep reading. In this passage, we continue on, and what we discover is that not only does he take the bread of affliction, but he takes the wine. He says, drink. This is my the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Very significant. He moves from the blood of affliction, his body, he is the lamb that will be afflicted on our behalf to release us out of slavery and bring bring us into freedom. But his blood will be shed for what purpose? The new covenant, forgiveness of sins. It's the cup of blessing. It's the cup of redemption. It's often referred to as the cup of redemption. In Exodus chapter 6, very interesting, even before this event happens, in Exodus chapter 6, God says these words to Moses. I will redeem you with outstretched arm. With an outstretched arm, God will redeem the people in Exodus chapter 6, 6. Is that not a foretaste of what Jesus would do? I mean, it aligns so beautifully, the Old Testament and the typology and the sim- symbolism of all that was going on in Israel. Jesus referred to that in himself. I will redeem you. I will take care of you. I will take you as my people, no longer as Pharaoh's people. See the significance of that? You are no longer Pharaoh's people. You are no longer controlled by the voice of Pharaoh. In this meal, what we do is as we take it and we drink this blood, we recognize that what Jesus is doing, very, very significant. It's the significance of the cup of redemption. I will be your God, not Pharaoh. I will take you and bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, it says, to a land that I swear to give to you for your possession. Look what Jesus is doing. He's bringing us into a land of freedom, out of the bondage of the Egyptians. Do you see that? That's what redemption does. That's what the cup represents. So when we drink the cup, it's the cup of the new covenant. The old covenant was based upon if God's people would be obedient to them, to God, he would be willing to pour out his blessings on their life. But in the new covenant, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. We are now freed from the enslavement of it forever. In one act. That's why Jesus had to suffer. In one act, everything is taken care of. Pharaoh is quenched, gone. He is silenced forever, in a sense, in your life. Sin no longer controls. It no longer binds you up. It's a beautiful picture. It's a meal that lasts for eternity. And, and, and Jesus reminds us that we are, he's taking us into a new land, a land of freedom. Galatians chapter 5, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. So drink this cup. It's, it's the cup of s- sacrificial self-substitution. And what that means, literally, is that like when Jesus said in Matthew 23, in the midst of judgment, Jesus was bringing, God was bringing judgment because of rebellion. Yet Jesus said, but I wish to be be like a hen that would guard you as little chicks and put you under me and protect you from what is about to happen. That's what Jesus wants to do. What he's offering us is full protection. Yellowstone had a serious fire many, many, many years ago. And after this incredible fire that uh, just literally went right through Yellowstone. One of the, um, they, they were actually going back and looking for life and looking for damage and all that. And, and someone actually came across a, a mother bird that had literally been charred to death, standing kind of where it was. And with a stick, uh, this person pushed it over. And so this charred mother bird fell over and three little chicks alive just rushed out from underneath the mother's wings. And that's a picture of what Jesus wants to do for us. He's the sacrificial bird, the hen that wants to care for his chicks and provide protection. That's the sacrificial self substitution of Jesus. Two important things to think about in this. First of all, it's all or nothing. It really is all or nothing. Substitution is not partial substitution. Substitution is all or nothing. You're in. You're all in. Back in 200s in the, Greek, in the Roman Empire, Servus Alexander, Marcus Aurelius, Servus Alexander was the emperor about 200 250. And um, Historia Augustus, Historia Augusta reports on the life of Servus Alexander in his worship. Talks about his daily life, and he says, in his common daily life, he would get up in the morning and he would go to his sanctuary of his lairs. That's the language. And he would worship all these various gods and among them would be Christ. And so service Alexander recognized that Constantine had given his life to Christ and that included now this God of Israel through the life of Christ to the Roman Empire. And so he included this God in his act of worship and yet what it is said about Service Alexander, is the Christians wouldn't worship as Service Alexander worshipped because they believed it was all or nothing. It wasn't like you worship Jesus and you worship all these other gods. It was a full sacrifice, a substitution, and we worship only that substitution. And in fact, the Christians would say this, You can't worship Christ at all unless you worship him alone. That's what sacrificial substitution means, that we recognize the completeness of it. But the second thing I want to talk about is the greatest act of love. Why did Jesus do it? Because he loves us. It's the compassion and love of Christ. Now let me illustrate this for you just briefly. It would be totally absurd for me to show you how much I love you by jumping off a cliff and dying, it would be worthless, right? I mean, it would be silly. But if I were to lose my life in the process of saving you from falling off a cliff, what would that look like? John fifteen tells us, verse thirteen: Greater love has no one than to lay down his life for a friend. It's the picture of true love. And here's the point. Here is the point. You die with a purpose. And Jesus died with a purpose. It was you. He had you in mind as he went to the cross. That's how we recognize the value and importance of a sacrificial substitution. Now, let me get to my last point. Why is this so important? And what do we do with this? Well, notice what Jesus says. He says, take and eat. I want you to take it. I want you to eat it. I want you to take and drink. I want you to take it into yourself. And there's been all sorts of discussions. There's actually four different views in terms of when we go to the table what the bread and, and the, the juice represent we understand that there's different views the Catholics truly believe in this transubstantiation that, that, that in the process of the blessing and in taking it Jesus is transformed the, ubiquity, the ubiquitous nature of Jesus is present and he's actually present he becomes the bread and becomes the juice the body and blood of Jesus, Jesus himself, and you are taking it in as John 6 says, you must take my flesh and eat it. You must take my blood and drink it, as he tells his disciples in John 6. He's being very graphic. It's a powerful representation of the importance of taking the communion, recognizing the presence of Christ. And I acknowledge that. Martin Luther came along and changed it just a bit—not a lot—but in his consubstantiation view, he says that the elements are in with and under uh, Christ is in with and under the elements. Excuse excuse me, and so he the body of Christ coexists with the elements. Another powerful image of the presence of Christ and what He has done for us. Zwingli came along, a contemporary of Luther, and said, no, it's just symbolic. It symbolizes the bread, the body, and the blood of Christ. John Calvin would say that's not good enough, and he backed, he, he went a little further and said, it brings the full presence of Christ in a spiritual way into the life of the believer. And so there's lots of different views, and I acknowledge that. And I acknowledge that that many of us here, when we take the communion and remember this moment, we are thinking something different about what is actually happening in the elements. And that's okay. Uh, That's not the point of of this message. The point is, is what Jesus says, is take it for yourself. Appropriate it. And when you do that, here's what happens. The benefits of this become yours, That's the point. That is the point. The Passover meal represents our freedom from bondage, not just forgiveness of sin. Many of us as believers live forgiven but not free. And in the Passover, what we learn in this last supper meal is Jesus equates himself to the lamb that is sacrificed so that the people of Israel would be able to walk free. He says, as we take it, you walk free. This is your opportunity. Jesus died to set you free. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And the meal celebrates redemption from tyranny of Pharaoh. And too many of us are still listening to a Pharaoh's voice in our lives. Slavery is always in Scripture a picture of slavery to an old, hostile, hopeless life apart from God's grace and compassion and abundance in our lives. Breaking the chains of sin that has often enslaved us is present in this act that we are about to do this morning. Romans chapter 6 says that we are no longer slaves to sin. Pharaoh no longer has control over us. And this morning, we we get the opportunity to celebrate this event. I was thinking in my own life, and one of the areas that I think I have felt most free in recent years as a result of Jesus' sacrifice is in the area of living with a tremendous amount of anxiety. And uh, when I had my heart attack, I've told the story that this ER nurse, after my first day of recovery in the uh, ICU unit, uh, came up to me and said, Mr. Windorf, I'm about ready to leave and my shift's over, and I just wanted to tell you something. I hadn't seen her. She'd been working in the background, and, and uh, this was my first day, you know, with my new life. And she's just leaned down and she says, Mr. Windorf, you need to learn how to care far less about far more. And then she left. She disappeared. Never saw her again. Never seen that woman again in my life. But I can remember that moment and that scene as she spoke for God, on God's behalf, what freedom looks like for me to be free from anxiety, all the things that I worry about and care about and get worked up about and hand those over and care far less about them. And that has become now a new mantra for me, a new new way of life. The voice of Pharaoh has been silenced at the cross. I'm wondering what what is happening in your life right now as we go. I'm going to invite Rachel back up to lead some worship for us. And I want to prepare your hearts as she comes back up. Let's enter into this new experience of communion. And we're going to, we're going to take communion in, in, a, in a minute. And she, we're going to do a worship song. And just I want you to reflect on that, that the voice of Pharaoh has been silenced in your life that Jesus is offering something far better, far better, and that his suffering brings the far better into your life. So, Father, we approach the communion table now with a new sense that you are doing a great work of not only restoring us and redeeming us, but setting us free. Oh, to live in the freedom of Christ is the most beautiful thing that we could ever enjoy in this life. So thank you, Father. We receive that in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Why don't you stand as we end our time in worship? Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Your regrets and mistakes Come today, there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling Trade your sorrows and trade them for joy From the ashes a new life is born Jesus is calling Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your blood, God. We sing this last song together to remember that Jesus has paid it all for us. He was the one who sacrificed it for us. And Jesus paid it all And all to him I owe And sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow And I hear I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. And Jesus paid it all. sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow and jesus and jesus paid it all and all to him i owe and sin had left a crimson stain He
0: Feel free as the uh, music continues to come forward and uh, take communion, have a time of reflection and connection, and we are so grateful to have shared this Sunday morning with you and Chloe's dedication and to reflect on this Passover meal that Jesus resignifies and says, here is its fulfillment in me. So, um, may God bless you. Enjoy some, some time with the Lord.
1: Why